I'll be preaching on Psalm 99 today. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can open to Psalm 99. My question for you this morning is simple. Does anyone believe in God anymore? Seriously, does anyone believe in God anymore? This last week, a U.S. senator from Nebraska had his lawsuit against God thrown out of court. This is not a joke. He really, truly tried to sue God. And it was thrown out of court because the Almighty wasn't properly served. And I quote, because God's home address is unlisted. I'm not making this up. Apparently, the Nebraskan senator, this is Nebraska of all places too, the Nebraska senator accused God of causing fearsome floods, egregious earthquakes, horrendous hurricanes, terrifying tornadoes, pestilential plagues, ferocious famines, devastating droughts, genocidal wars, birth defects, and the like. The suit goes on to say, God is called calamitous catastrophes resulting in the widespread death, destruction, and terrorization of millions upon millions of the earth's inhabitants, including innocent babes, infants, children, the aged, and infirm without mercy or distinction. End quote. I don't know what's worse, a senator willing to sue God or the people who elected him. <laughs> Does anyone believe in God anymore? This is a far cry from the thoughts of Psalm 99, which begins with the words, The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. When was the last time any nation trembled before a holy God? When was the last time you trembled before a holy God? Does anyone believe in God anymore? Now, the key to understanding Psalm 99 is the word holy. It's used three times, and it, it completes each section. So in verse, in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, it says, Holy is he, God. Then down in verse 5, holy is he. And then at the very end of the Psalm 99, it says, God is holy. So that word three times occurs. And this is not by mistake. When holy is used three times, it's making a very important point. Our opening hymn, holy, holy, holy. It's not that they didn't, they didn't feel like, you know, two's not enough and four is too much. No, three holies is a complete number. So it's a complete holiness. It's, it's saying that God's holiness is complete. So three times it's used. Now the hymn, Holy, 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 is based on Revelation 4, 8 through 11, where creatures sing day and night before the throne of God, and they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty. Now that hymn also recalls way back to Isaiah 6, where when he saw God, the heavenly creatures were singing, Holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6, 3. And so three is a perfect number. The Lord's holiness is perfect. So holy is he, holy is he, God is holy. Yeah. Now what does that word mean, holy? The word holy means to separate or to set apart. 
And so when God visits a place and sets it apart, that place is holy. Mount Sinai is an example of that. When God sets apart a people, when he separates a people, Israel, they're his people. That's holy. When God separates or sets apart a day, that too is holy. The Sabbath day is holy. Why? Because God has set it apart. Now in our psalm, Psalm 99, God is holy. He's set apart. He's separate because he is exalted over all the nations. King of kings, Lord of lords. He's higher than, more exalted than any other nation, any other king. God is also holy in our psalm because his judgments are very different than the judgments on earth. His judgments are always righteous and just. And finally, God is holy because he delivers his people. He answers their prayers. He forgives their sins. And he punishes evildoers. And so the Lord is holy. He is set apart. Holy, holy, holy. But does anyone believe this anymore? Does anyone believe that God is holy, set apart? I'm afraid that when we think of God as holy, we mistake the idea of set apart or separateness as distance. We just think God is distant from us. God is away from us, out of sight, out of mind. I mean, like the senator, we think our problems are the result of God's his distance, his farness. The financial problems are the result of the fact that God won't bail us out. The U.S. government might, but God won't bail us out. Wars and natural disasters are the result of God's unwillingness. How dare you, God, not lend a gracious hand and stop it? And so we put God on trial for our own crimes. And why not? If God is distant, he's not going to come back and step in. So let's blame him. And you've, we've all done that, right? The friend leaves and we'll all blame him. Or we do something different. If we're not suing God, we turn this far away God, this distance God, to, to the kind of God we want. Kind and cuddly. We tell ourselves that God is love, 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 love. A sweet and soft God. We, we, we say God is, is, is tender and gentle. And so we file him into the back of the drawer. We keep God in the background, just out of reach of our busy lives. We don't want to bother God. We won't want him to step in. And so God, stay out on the distance. Go on that vacation. Because we don't actually want you to come near. Does anyone believe in God anymore? The people of Israel got into trouble when they mistook God's separateness for distance. In Samuel 8, the people ask for a king. Now, God had been a king for them. God had led them out of Egypt. God had led them through the promised land. God had raised judges. God had been their king. But the people weren't satisfied with that. They thought God was too distant, and so they wanted an earthly king. And so Samuel says this to the people. You really want an earthly king? This is what he's going to do. He's going to take from you. Are you sure this is what you want? In 1 Samuel 8, Samuel says this. This is what the king who will reign over you will do. 
He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will sign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have, you have chosen. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. But then the sad part goes on. The people refuse to listen to Samuel. And they say, no, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. What do they want? They were willing to take a king who would take from them everything. Why? Because God, they thought, was too distant, too far away. They mistook God's holiness, his separateness, his set-apartness for distance. And so they are willing to satisfy, willing to settle for a terrible king instead of what they thought was a distant God. But are we any different? We settle for terrible kings all the time, and I'm not only referring to the federal government. Sorry, I had to say that. I'm sorry. <laughs> we settle for anything that's close, that's safe, an IRA, a bank account, a friend, a, a, a drug. We settle for anything that can be close that we can hold on to. Why? Because we mistake God's holiness for distance. We'd rather have poison in our hand that might bring us some relief than trust in the heart of a God who is providing for us. And so we sue God or turn him into a kind and cuddly God or do, does God knows what with God. And so what is God to do with us? What is God to do with his, his people who mistake his holiness for distance? What must God do with a people bent on suing him or changing him? What must God do? Now, God, his holiness could, could wipe us out. God probably should wipe us out. Martin Luther said, if, if I was God, I would wipe out the whole mess of the whole world. God probably could also demand that we understand his holiness. But that's not what God does. Because that's never worked. Instead, God does the very opposite. Instead of making us understand his holiness... His separateness. God takes on our unholiness. Instead of being separate from us, God attaches himself to us. God comes near to us. God enters into this mess in the person of Jesus Christ. As John tells us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
Or as the Christian, the good Christmas hymn says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. I mean, can you believe that God puts on flesh, in other words? Hail, incarnate deity, pleased as man with us to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us, not separate. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. What does God do? He doesn't expect us to understand his holiness. God puts on our unholiness. He attaches himself to us in Christ Jesus. And so, of course, in doing this, Jesus has to come in weakness, not in might. Because if God only wants to attach himself to Caesar, then God would come in a royal temple, in a palace. But God wants to attach himself to us, the weak and the lowly. And so Jesus isn't born in a palace. Instead, he's born in a manger. And instead of a, a, a throne of gold, he takes on a throne of wood, the cross. And instead of a crown of, of rubies, Christ puts on a, a crown of thorns. Jesus lays aside all of heaven's holiness to become a curse so that we who are under the curse would be made holy. That's what God does. And yet God's not done even there. And that's why we're having the Lord's Supper today instead of next week, just next week. Because God goes further. Jesus goes further. Jesus is willing to attach himself into the sacraments as well. Jesus enters simple water to make baptism holy. Jesus enters simple bread, lowly bread, and lowly wine, making it holy for you. In the sacrament, God touches a weak and vulnerable crown of his creation. And there God says, yes. Yes, you're incorporated into Christ and to his body. Yes, you're initiated and adopted into my covenant people. Yes, you're called, chosen, saved, born again. Yes, you are forgiven, free to live without excuses. Yes, you are a royal priesthood, set aside, made holy to proclaim. Yes, you're marked with the cross of Christ forever. Yes, you're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yes, you are holy. Yes, you're mine. No matter what you have done, no matter what you've left undone, God, the holy God, has come down and touched you. And therefore, you are holy His. Now, isn't that something to tremble about? Isn't that something to believe in? Oh, Lord, give us faith. In Jesus' name, amen.